Hi, this is Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where we'll be talking to Jessica Turton to discuss the use of continuous glucose monitoring for optimising metabolic health. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Adrian Lepristi, and joining us on the line today from New Zealand is Professor Julia Rutledge. Julia is a clinical psychologist, the director of the Mental Health and Nutrition Research Group at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, and the author of over 140 peer-reviewed publications. Julia is passionate about advocating for a good nutritional foundation being central to helping people prevent and recover from mental health challenges. And that's what we're going to discuss today, the relationship between stress, trauma, and nutrition. So welcome to FX Medicine, Julia. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great, and it's a delight to be here. That's great. It's great to have you on today. I know um, that you've trained as a clinical psychologist, so I suppose I'm really interested in how you became interested in nutrients and its relationship to mental health. Sure, and I'd be interested in your journey as well, Adrian, given you're also a clinical psychologist. But my journey was that I was trained in a very traditional model back in the 1990s, a very conventional program at the University of Calgary in Canada. And I was trained that nutrition was pretty irrelevant to the brain. I don't know if that's exactly explicitly what they said, but it was never covered. And anytime there was a suggestion that you could change your diet, it was always viewed with great skepticism. And and patients who said they'd change their diet and that their mental health symptoms got better were typically dismissed that that probably couldn't possibly be causal. So I, I was very skeptical of the idea that nutrition was could be relevant to helping people's mental health problems. But when I was doing my PhD, which is done alongside the clinical psychology training um, in Canada, my PhD supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, was approached by some families in southern Alberta, Canada, who were using nutrients, particularly micronutrients, minerals and vitamins in a in a pill form to help people who were suffering from really serious psychiatric problems like bipolar disorder and psychosis um, and depression. So initially, she ignored their you know, their data and ignored what they viewed as a revolutionary idea. But over time, she accepted uh, to at least look at some of the changes and hear stories about people using these nutrients. And so got a little intrigued and decided to to do some very small preliminary open label studies uh, around the time when I was okay. just finishing, finishing up. So that, that led me to hear about these stories and then you know, after it doesn't take long before you realize that not enough people are getting well with our current conventional treatments like psychotherapy and medications. I mean, they certainly play a role. And so I decided to follow this lead and start studying them uh, when I moved to uh, New Zealand back in 2000. I mean, I didn't start doing the research until uh, quite a few years later, but it got me intrigued and started to do some trials and, and saw a lot of people, not everyone get better, but it was certainly intriguing. 
Right. Yeah. I certainly had the similar experience to you in, in certainly in my, my training. We didn't talk about nutrition and, at all. Uh, and even practicing as a clinical psychologist, I went straight out into private practice. So, you know, I really yeah. didn't consider diet or nutrition at all until I became interested in it through, you know, just my personal interest and then, uh, right. and then just reading some of the research. Yes. I mean, oftentimes that's what happens is that people experience benefit themselves and then they, they, you know, I've certainly heard a lot of psychologists tell that to me that they went on their own personal journey and then realized, gosh, this is actually quite important. Uh, this can really make a substantial difference to my life. And then I've heard, you know, I'm sure as you have hundreds and hundreds of stories of people getting well with change in diet or adding additional uh, nutrients as in a supplement form. So it's the data though now are so compelling and incredibly, I would say, robust. I mean, there's problems with as there is with any field, but I feel pretty confident that we're we're starting to really get a clearer picture about how what specific things can help and in what combinations they can help people. I imagine a lot of your students now are coming out of their uh, psychology training and understanding and appreciating the uh, importance of nutrition for mental health, which is going to be great. Yeah, yeah, no, I hope so. Uh, We haven't, I have to convince my colleagues that it's something that's foundational to the training of a clinical psychologist Mm -hmm. and and you know how how much they cram into these programs. So I haven't convinced them that it needs to be the forefront, even though I think that good foundation of nutrition should be the first thing that you look at is if they are not feeding their brains appropriately, then of course they're going to be unwell. And of course that's going to contribute to their psychological presentation. And yes. so we need to be asking those questions. Maybe I've got them asking those questions about you know gut health and asking about diet. It can be slow to change. And, yeah. and then of course you need to change it at the national level around what is viewed as essential parts of core curriculum of the clinical psychology program. But I assume Australia has the same problems. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely just trying to work out which uh, components to include in training or not. So we'll see how we go. So uh, Yes, but I think more people are getting interested in it and definitely yeah. in asking for workshops and things like that. So it's, it's um, encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. So in this podcast, I suppose what I really wanted to specifically concentrate on is the relationship between stress and trauma and nutrition. Firstly, can you tell us a bit about what effects stress and trauma has on us physically and psychologically? Sure. Well, I think we're all familiar with that fight, flight, freeze response that we can get when we're faced with a it's particularly, uh, you know, an immediate acute stressor. Uh, for me, I felt that enormously over the last, well, not you know, necessarily more recent, like recently, but certainly 10 years ago when we had ongoing earthquakes, I experienced that physiological response quite acutely and over nice. and over and over again. So that's the heart racing and feeling sick in the stomach and the change in breathing and the, you know, change in focus and concentration. So all of those uh, physical changes that we have, but we also know that it impacts on our on our sleep, on our irrit- levels of irritability, on our anxiety levels in general. So it has a wide range of effects on us, both physically and psychologically. Yeah, absolutely. You've got all those, you know, that certain fight or flight response that occurs. And, mm. and then, I mean, I suppose over time, it also changes how you see the world, which can then potentially consistently put you in that, that fight or flight response, any small stressor or may kind of trigger well, that response in someone. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, we we know very well about the avoidance that can happen around trying to prevent yourself from getting that that mm. trigger of that anxiety reaction. So then you and then that just perpetuates the problem because you, as we know, you avoid and then that relieves the anxiety. And so you think that there must mean something fearful to avoid and then you just keep that going. And so we know how important it is to expose ourselves to the fearful situation. But when you are dealing with things that are really quite, that are threatening, it can be hard to figure your way through that and, and feel that fear and do it anyway. And so from my perspective, I think it's something we really need to think about is how do we make people more resilient around that journey and and helping them to be able to live with, you know, uncertainty and live with things are going to be bad. Bad things happen to us. But how do we, you know, have that resilience to overcome them? Yeah, and that's where that combination of, you know, certainly, obviously, we'll talk today about the the nutritional side and the dietary side, but uh, it's where that combination of psychological therapy and, and diet and nutrition play a really integral part in healing someone, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think uh, if we could figure out ways of integrating the different treatments to have a really wonderful package that uh, we can offer people when they are experiencing those levels of stress. The challenge, though, is that when you have these stressors that affect an entire population, so the research that I've done, you know, post-earthquake and other stressors, but then I think about the pandemic and you think that's a population level stressor and all the things that are happening there. And it's very hard then to reach people on a one-to-one. So we yeah. need to be thinking more broadly, how do we make sure that people have the resources and the knowledge so that they can empower themselves to better cope with those types of situations? Because we just, I mean, at the end of the day, we just don't have enough personnel to to help yes. a, a, a community that large. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where certainly nutrients and can play a part there. So I suppose what I wanted to do first for listeners is really just go into briefly just some of the physiological changes that occur when somebody's experiences ongoing stress or trauma? Because that, that might help people to understand then how then nutrients potentially play to help heal somebody. So so from a biological perspective, you've mentioned the fight or flight response that occurs and the, the adrenaline and the cortisol that often occurs during that fight or flight yeah. response. But what else happens physically when people are experiencing trauma? What else happens physically? I'm just wondering where you're trying to go with this, Adrian. Um, <laughs> well, it, oh, you suppose... mean like, uh, like, are you thinking about like the gut changes and yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, inflammatory response and yep. um, changes in well neurotransmitters? I suppose some of them. I, I, I think there's. I mean, we do know that there's a wide range of different physiological changes, and feel free to jump in on the ones that you feel. You know, that I'm sure that you have more knowledge than I do. What I've really focused in on is directed by the research that I've been doing. And Mm -hmm. so the research that I've been doing has been on using vitamins and minerals in that stress response, acknowledging the role that they play in, say, the methylation cycle. So we know that the B vitamins are really important for supporting the methylation cycle. And so that's the methylation cycle being an important cycle in in our cells that produces your methyl group. I don't know how much you want me to go into that for your listeners, but we know how important methyl groups are for Mm -hmm. changing expression of DNA. So we know that the B vitamins or minerals are essential for all of those steps, all of those chemical transformations that are happening. 
at that biological level. So to make sure that we provide the body with those nutrients that are cofactors along those cycles is going to be really important for any part of the, you know, for anything, but they're also going to be important at a time when you're needing to make more cortisol or make more adrenaline because it doesn't just come out of a vacuum. You need ingredients in order to make them. And so we know that the making of say adrenaline uh, requires, again, those cofactors along the different pathways. So making sure that you have an ample supply of those nutrients is going to always be really important so that your fuel tank is full. So that when you have that fight flight response, you've got everything that's going to be required. I mean, one way that I've I found it really helpful to think about it is from a, a hypothesis or a theory that's called the triage theory. And the triage theory postulates that when your body is under an immediate threat that threatens your survival, then it's going to always um, shunt all of the resources towards ensuring that your survival occurs at the expense of other long-term function. So I liked this idea because it made me realize, okay, if you've got a limited supply of nutrients to support the making of these neurochemicals that are, and neurotransmitters that are important for the fight flight response, for example, then they're going to go towards that, and then there's less available for you know the regulation of your mood or regulation of your sleep or just other bodily functions that it's okay for you to be irritable as long as you're alive. It's okay for yeah. your sleep to not be great as long as you're alive. So I found that a really useful way of thinking about what happens when we're under a lot of stress. And so then you kind of have to have that kind of thought of, okay, but where do we get these nutrients from? And why is it that when we look at the research on, say, even just regular stress, and there's been research on B vitamins, for example, and stress Mm -hmm. for, I think it's close to two, probably over two decades. And you look at the research, you go, well, why is it that you these people do better when they're receiving more B vitamins. Why isn't why aren't they getting that out of their food? I mean, they should be getting out of their food if they have a normal, what we'd be calling a normal healthy diet. And so then that leads you down the rabbit hole of going, oh my gosh, our diet is just really not sufficient to help us to help maintain those you know adequate nutrient levels for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the number one obvious reason is that the diets of so many people are really not adequate. I mean, they're, they're, they're just not, they're not adequately giving the brain the nutrients it needs. And so, so I don't know if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. I know there's other things and I'm, you know, happy for you to throw other things in, but that's sort of that sort of concentrating on those aspects of the stress response are really due to the research Mm -hmm. that I've been conducting on the nutrients. So really, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too. Well, I mean, certainly I agree, you know, really during times of um, stress and trauma, the, the body demands are, are greater. So therefore, the need for nutrients is going to be more more imperative, particularly in producing the different hormones that are necessary for survival. So I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, I mean, it's curious. I mean, I'm curious, as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, there's lots of research showing that people who are depressed or, or stressed uh, or, or maybe suffering from anxiety, maybe their diet isn't so great. But have you seen any research, what actually happens when people are experiencing stress? Do their diet changes 
for the worse or for the better. Have you seen any of that research? Yeah. Uh, we have researchers here at the University of Canterbury who have been monitoring people's diets longitudinally. And so they had diet records of their eating patterns before the earthquake, for example. And then they looked at their what their dietary patterns were after the earthquake. And it was very clear that there was a dietary change for the worse, okay. uh, for the most part, and more of a reaching for those comfort foods that we're very familiar mm-hmm. with and high, high sugary foods and those high-carb foods, but not as many of those complex carbs. So we know that, that, that there's definitely research that supports that idea. And it, and it makes intuitive sense. And having been through these earthquakes and understanding it from first hand what happens, you're displaced from your home. So our house yeah. was, was incredibly badly damaged in the February 2011 earthquake. And so we couldn't live at home. We were in temporary housing. So you don't have access to your sort of your even your cookbooks or your pots and pans that you'd normally use. There, everything is just different. And you don't have your even your staples are gone, right? Your, of your, mm-hmm. your flour, your spices or all of those are just not as easily accessible. So you do t- your your diet pattern does change, and then you look at what happens to people who end up in the in the really you know the relief centers. You know people who have been completely dislocated and are in those really you know large centers. You look at the food. I saw the food, and I remember it just being white bread and really highly ultra processed foods that they're giving people during that time. It makes sense. It's easy. It's easier to package it that way, but. It's certainly not going to be providing the nutrients that those people need to help them with those stressors. So we've got the research and I can, you know, give you the anecdotal experience that uh, there are changes that are happening in people's diets at a time when I would now go, oh, it's so essential that you eat well. I mean, I now I'm so much more familiar with this and how important it is that when there are ongoing stressors that I will, I mean, you're going to know that I have a good diet. (laughs) So. <laughs> um, it's it's going to be obvious from you don't you, you practice what you preach, right? So, Absolutely. so there's not necessarily huge changes that can be made, but I have experienced some stressors that I can think of where. I would add in additional nutrients, like as a supplement. Um, I'm thinking of when I was overseas this year, I had to go overseas because my father passed away and I went over to the UK. And so I went from New Zealand where there was just no COVID to a high COVID environment where you're completely vigilant and hypervigilant of your environment. Not because I was scared of getting COVID, I was just scared of getting a positive test, which meant that I wouldn't be able to leave and get home again. So it's just, there's these, really big stressors on you. And and I found that just adding in some additional nutrients at that point really helped with just easing that stress and helping me become, you know, re- return to a more resilient state. So, you know, those are, I know, personal stories, but we also have a lot of clinical data from our lab and from labs overseas that um, also show that sometimes you do need additional nutrients when that the stress levels really do increase substantially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, you make a good point that, um, you know, certainly after a, a trauma or major event that's happened to somebody, you know, potentially, you know, what should be happening is that their self-care should be better. But unfortunately, because of lifestyle circumstances and, and, yeah. and changes in their environment, often that can't happen. So un- unfortunately, then the, the diet becomes worse or the nu- uh, nutrient kind of yeah. intake becomes worse. Exactly. And that's where potentially vitamins and minerals could play a really important part. Yeah. 
Exactly. But I, I do wish, and I don't know if I'm just being you know, naive here, but I think about the ongoing stress that we've all experienced over the last two years. And I think, why is it there isn't more messaging about lifestyle? Why hasn't that happened? Why aren't we getting that at, a, you know, at that public level? Is it that they just think it's too hard or we had to focus on one message uh, and that if you start to introduce uh, you know, some, you know, other things that you could also do that it might dilute the primary message that's out there. I, I don't know, but I just think that we, we would all benefit if we could, you know, if we, we, co- we're constantly focusing on our well-being and, you know, reducing our stress levels during this sort of really chronic period of stress. But, um, they must have a good reason for not including, you know, make, looking after your diet or making sure that you exercise every day. There was some at the beginning, I remember, but I certainly haven't heard it more recently. Or even, you know, get outside, get some vitamin D, these types of things. So it's just, it hasn't happened. Maybe it's happened in Australia. I think they've talked a little bit about, you know, getting out there and, and so forth. But, um, you know, I suppose, you know, a lot, a lot of what you say, you know, getting outside and, and you know, taking a, a, a supplement or, or um, you know, sleeping better and spending time with other people, they're, they're not difficult things to implement. And, and, and really, we need to be advocating more for that. And yeah, unfortunately, it's not the case, unfortunately. Exactly. Yes. So um, a question I had, like when somebody experiences, is there any research around, like when somebody experiences a, a trauma or a major stress, is there research saying that people with better um, nutrient status or better diets are more resilient? They kind of respond better to the stress or the trauma? Right. Um, well, I could, that's not an easy thing to answer, as you can probably imagine, Adrian, yeah. because it requires you to sort of predict a stressor. Um, but the, I guess the thing that I think of when you ask that question is my own research, which was where we had a naturalistic opportunity to look at um, to to look at whether or not people who happen to be uh, better nourished, and by that I mean they were taking additional nutrients in, in you know in quite a quite high doses, not you know not toxic levels, but you know high doses of vitamins and minerals prior to uh, a major stressor. And then the stressor happened, and then we were able to see whether or not those who were more, um, uh, who had the, that intake of nutrients prior to the stressor, were more resilient in terms of reductions of their anxiety and their stress and, um, and mood, whether or not those improved following that stressor. So you might be thinking, how in the world did she do this? And uh, it's, it's again, the earthquakes that we had mm-hmm. opportunities as a consequence of having people in clinical trials. And so some of them had started the clinical trial and some of them uh-huh. hadn't. And so it was a naturalistic experiment. I don't th- know how you would do that. I mean, I'm th- you know, as I say this, I think, can you actually do this? You could maybe manipulate this. You could probably do this in the lab. I, you know, okay. now I'm just like going in my my mind is going elsewhere. But um, that that earthquake that happened in September 2010 allowed us to answer that question, which was that if people happen to be taking the nutrients before that really major stressor, it was a 7.1 earthquake. This is it's. Wow. Have you been in an earthquake, Adrian? No, I haven't. No. Um, so it, it's it's a you know life threatening event and absolutely downright terrifying. So 
it's your, you know, your your house is just shaking violently uh, for two to three minutes. Uh, everything, things are falling off the wall. Things are crashing. Wow. The noise is incredible. So, so that, and then after that, you have these ongoing aftershocks. So that just goes on and on and on and on. So, so that allow, that study allowed this naturalistic observation allowed us to answer this question, and that is that people who happened to be taking the nutrients before the earthquake were more resilient, and they their stress levels, uh, of course, went up soon after the earthquake, but they decreased much more rapidly and to a much lower level um, and huge effect sizes between the two groups. There were a large, like, I think it was 0.8 or something between those two groups of people who happened to be taking nutrients happened to not be taking nutrients. So I guess for me, that was a really good naturalistic experiment that really answers your question, but I'm not aware of anything else. Are you aware of any other kind of study I mean, people have stress and then they see whether or not they can help reduce stress. But to answer that question around prior to a stressor, I can only think of that study that I did after the September earthquake. But I'd love to know if there was there are other studies like that out there. No, I haven't seen a lot as it, you know, when it's used as, I suppose, as a preventative, um, which is really yeah. how I think we just need to be looking at it. On, exactly. on the last few days, I've actually been writing a paper looking at a herbal ingredient, curc- curcumin actually, and mm-hmm. uh, looking at some of its research around depression and so forth. And I was looking at a lot of the animal studies and what I noticed was that in more than 95% of these animal studies, what they actually did was they gave curcumin prior to the stressor. So not okay. actually after the stressor. So all of these animal studies, they're giving the ingredient before the stressor, then potentially preparing them, these animals for the stressor. And then obviously then they go, okay, then the curcumin had these antidepressant or anti, anti-stress effects. And there was one study actually where what they did was in one group of animals, they gave the curcumin before the stressor and it had yeah. you know, positive effects, positive antidepressant effects. But then in another group of animals, what they did is they actually gave curcumin after the stressor and it didn't actually work. So it's really interesting, oh. you know, and that makes me think, okay, well, and when you talk about kind of the micronutrients, you know, certainly could we get a bigger bang for buck in, in terms of its mental health effects if we actually deliver it prior to the stress? Obviously, you're not going to know when a trauma is going to happen, but it just kind exactly. of, you know, it's just something to think about. You know, obviously that stress, or we'll give it as soon as possible, which is um, after the stressor is maybe what we need to be looking at rather than one to two, three years after the stressor, which is still might be helpful, but maybe we're going to get greater efficacy if we can use it immediately yeah. after no, as I, people have been exposed. I, I didn't know about those studies. No, that's, of course, I'm like, of course, animal studies can answer that question. You can do things like that with animals. You just can't do that as easily with humans. No. Um, but that's a really, that's intriguing, isn't it? But it, it, it makes sense. It makes sense mm. that people, we know that from trauma in general, that the people, you know, that a lot of people are resilient and they do recover. And we know what some of those risk factors are for those people who are less likely to recover and to have long ongoing PTSD symptoms, they're going to be the ones who had PTSD before and they were the ones who were more vulnerable before. Yeah. And so we know that the those who have less resources, maybe they have less 
um, resources because they're of lower economic status or they have less, you know, sort of psychological resources, mm-hmm. we know they're going to be struggling more. So we, we kind of know who they are. And it, it just, again, it makes so much sense that we use that information that we have from our, from these psychological studies or from these nutritional studies that you described. And, and we, and we, you know, we try to really up the resilience of the entire population rather than, again, just using this as a one-to-one kind of information that when somebody comes to your office and they're stressed or they're struggling with depression, you go, well, hey, did you know about all of these things that you can be doing? Yeah, but that's just always, to me, seems Mm. like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff kind of approach. You know, it can work, but we would just do so much better if we could just, you know, I guess I, I'm being far too hopeful of what we can achieve at a population level, but that just really seems to be where we we could have way greater impact if we could yeah. disseminate these ideas at that big, broader level. Yeah, and certainly us as practitioners, we can certainly um, you know, inform our, our our clients that we see, and and even you know, let inform you know, get them to inform their family members about the importance of nutrients, and maybe you know, if we can do it on a one-to-one basis, and then you know, just really get that message out there, that'd be really important. Um, now, yeah. I'm curious. I, w- I was hoping for you to just really just summarise just some of your research around what the research says around micronutrients as a treatment for stress and trauma. Um, has mm-hmm. most of the studies been with adults that you've done, or you've done children study with children, or is it mostly adults? Uh, we've done both. We've done studies mm-hmm. with uh, yeah children and adults after. So I described that one study, which is the only study that that we've done where we we had we gave the nutrients before the stressor, but that was only yep. because of the naturalistic environment and how it how it happened. After the so the, for for. Christchurch, we had two really big earthquakes. One was in September and one was in February. We had lots of other aftershocks, but those were the sort of identified as the really big ones. So we had that September one where we discovered this resilience. And then after the Christchurch earthquake, what I did, uh, my team did, was that we randomized people to different doses of micronutrients and also had a comparator with only B, uh, mostly B, B complex, but a few, a, a couple of minerals. And to see whether or not they, you know, if, was there a better dose? Um, did, was it advantageous to have the additional minerals? Uh, so, we, yeah, so we could look at those kinds of questions. And what we found was that, in fact, it didn't matter what condition you were in. You ended up, we saw great changes in people's stress and anxiety that had happened as a consequence of that February earthquake. So that's really good news, is that even a B-complex is really useful mm-hmm. at reducing stress when you've had that kind of really major stressor. Um, all three groups were better than the um, sort of, we had a non-randomized uh, treatment as usual group, and they were people who actually looked quite similar at baseline, you know, because we couldn't randomize people to not receive treatment, but we did have people who happened to just, they just, they, they signed up for the study and then they decided they didn't want to do nutrients. They wanted to, you know, go for medication or, or not do anything. They decided this was just going to be too hard for them, but they allowed us to, to monitor them. So we had this, this, this naturalistic kind of treatment as usual group. And they just showed very, very little change over the one month monitoring period okay. as opposed to the other three groups who showed a really substantial difference. I mean, the the rate of what I call probable PTSD 
And I say that because we didn't do clinical interviews. We used a questionnaire and we used a cutoff. And so we used the impact of events uh, scale, the IES um, rating scale. So there's a cutoff that you can use and identify people as if they went for a clinical interview, they probably have PTSD. So it's not perfect, but it's it's all we could do in that kind of environment. And it went from the rate of probable PTSD in the collectively of those people who were taking the nutrients went from 65% down to 19% in that one month period using that cutoff that I described. Um, Whereas there was virtu- there was no change. It was about stayed about forty eight percent in the uh, treatment as usual group. So you can't argue that it was just the natural passage of time or regression to the mean or other things that happen that explain why people get better. And also during that monitoring period or that t- that sort of that randomized period, there were a lot of aftershocks. So it's not like the stressor had gone away. There was ongoing stress, uh, ongoing things going on in the community. All kinds of things were happening. People's their land was being declared as being what we called red zoned, which meant they had they couldn't go home. They weren't allowed to go home and rebuild. The government bought their houses, and so they they had to relocate, and whole communities had to relocate. So there was a lot wow. that was going on during that time. So that for me was pretty robust. But what we did find was that those people who were getting additional minerals, there was, you can, if you look at the sort of overall trajectory of the data, it's, it does show that there's sort of a, it does seem like there's this incremental dose effect, but probably fairly small, but where as you add more nutrients in, then you do tend to get an even bigger effect, especially for their self-report of how much better they thought they were doing. So that's the, the sort of the earthquake study. We then did a study with children, but not in this kind of RCT kind of way. We did a um, an on-off, on-off uh, experimental design, and we saw mm-hmm. great changes, though, in this these groups of children who were using nutrients and then went on and off. And so we saw some really robust improvement in their anxiety levels that then went backwards when they went off the nutrients and then back on they, the the anxiety improved again. Um, but I haven't done an RCT with kids with stress and anxiety. We've done it with ADHD, but not with um, not with stress. And then um, after a flood in Alberta, Canada, we replicated, um, sort of did a similar design, but used a vitamin D, comp- a vitamin D comparator. And the vitamin D comparator did not make huge, show much change in the stress, whereas there was huge changes in the B complex and the broad spectrum nutrient approach. Uh, so it sort of replicated what we'd seen after the earthquake. Um, and then a third replication was after the mosque shooting. I don't know if you heard of in yeah. on March 15th, 2019, a horrible event in Christchurch where a gunman went into two mosques and um, shot and killed 49 and injured um, a, sort of a similar number. And for, so 49 people killed. Uh, and what we did as a research to practice intervention, so not research, but really that translation was that we couldn't sit by and do nothing. We did we did everything that we could to try to uh, elicit the community to use the resources the, uh, to to purchase nutrients or to to mm-hmm. just use nutrients as one of the arms of intervention. And I, and none of my efforts worked. And so we ended up just uh, fundraising ourselves and then giving them away and then monitoring people clinically. 
and again okay. saw the exact replication of the effect that we'd seen after the earthquake and after the flood. So really was a simple intervention that you can actually apply broadly because you don't need a lot of resources to give people nutrients. There's a lot of people out there who think that they're, they're dangerous or they're, you know, there's, they're they're somehow going to harm people. But if you're, you know, there are a few cautions that you need to be aware of. Um, If people are already taking antidepressants, then we just need to be a bit careful of that. Uh, But outside of that, you know, if you have allergies, you might, you know, that'd be something to think about. But pe- most people don't have allergies to nutrients um, for the most part. I mean, we've got yeah. some rare ones where if you had, you know, took too much iron for people who have hemochromatosis, then that could be a problem or Wilson's disease of too much copper. But um, those are fairly rare events. So for the most part, fairly easy to implement a strategy when you do have a big stressor in a, in a community. So we just with that mosque um, tragedy was was that yeah. people who were directly involved or was it also people who were just obviously witnessed it through media and so forth? Um, we were not. We certainly didn't choose people to if they wanted nutrients. If they approached us, and just mm-hmm. you know, the context was that I'm a you know white woman who didn't have any uh, connections with the Muslim community, but there was a graduate student in my department who did. He's a Muslim student doing a PhD. So he knew already about the research that I'd been doing. And so he was really facilitated sharing that information with people in his community. So it was, we had people who had been in the mosque for sure that had had suffered greatly, um, either had been injured or they'd, you know, they'd witnessed uh, this uh, terrorist attack. Um, But also like the widows, the widows of Mm -hmm. the men who had Uh, been killed in the mosque, we were open to giving it to them. Uh, I guess if you look at the definition of PTSD, it can be a trauma either to you or, or someone else. So we yeah. certainly didn't want to exclude giving the nutrients. If somebody was feeling stressed and traumatized by that event, then we, we gave it to them. We didn't, you know, we certainly didn't want to exclude people from getting help. We had a lot of refugees who we were helping because uh, that's, you know, a lot of refugees mm-hmm. were involved in the event in that, in the massacre. So, um, so, so, and that's, and, and again, that, that speaks to the difficulty of intervening with refugees sometimes because of the language barriers. And we yeah. saw a lot of that, of the, the difficulties of even providing psychotherapy, even though that was being offered, that it was very difficult to do because of the, the having to do that via translation. And so that, certainly put up a lot of barriers, whereas they were very open to the idea of of taking nutrients. In fact, we'd always get the, you know, people, they they would far prefer to get the nutrients and get psychotherapy. If they were offered psychotherapy, they'd already heard about this underground thing that was going of the, you know, the nutrients. And they said, well, I want those nutrients. (laughs) It's far simpler, isn't it? um, yeah, so we did that for we did this until pretty much lockdown of last year, and then at that point we could no longer keep keep going because it just became too challenging. But we did it for about over a year. We were giving out nutrients. So what is it that you gave them? Was it a B complex or was it a combination? What was it that you gave them? Oh, broad spectrum. Again, very similar to what we'd used in the earthquake okay. and in the in the flood was a uh, your full array of your B vitamins, absolutely, but yep. full array of your minerals. So for practitioners, if they wanted to kind of include multi-nutrient 
formulas or, or yeah. micronutrients with their clients, how do they kind of choose one that, that may kind of they feel might be work better than another? I know, and that's a really hard question to answer, as you can well imagine. Well, first of all, because I, I just so that your listeners know, I don't sell nutrients and supplements. Uh, I just research them, and I've researched a, a, a number of different products over the years. And so, for me, it's I'd say there's so much out there, and there are probably some really, really good products. And so, I would be definitely looking for that breadth, and I'd also be looking for the dose. And this is where it becomes a bit difficult around the legislation uh, and the legislative differences between Australia and New Zealand, although they're probably more similar than this, than different. Um, mm-hmm. Is that some some doses are restricted in in terms of what you can purchase from the supermarket? And so if you start to look at the doses, you'll know it's too low when it's like, you know, it says something like 10% of your RDA or your your DV, your, you know, your recommended dietary allowance or your daily value. So when those numbers are really quite low, um, I'd say it'd probably help you maybe with scurvy, prevention of scurvy, that'd be mm-hmm. a good thing, or a prevention of rickets, maybe, um, but probably not adequate for, for your overall brain health because the those RDAs were developed with the body, the physical body in mind, I mean, not that the brain the brain is part of the physical body, but with more about your heart or your, your bones or your muscles. Um, but remarkably, the brain needs um, are not, have not been really taken into consideration in the development of RDAs, which is kind of really surprising. And I wish they'd update them and take yeah. that into consideration. So, um, so I'd be looking at that breadth. I'd be looking at, and for me, I, I think that there's no single nutrient that's special. So you can, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of um, push for different single nutrients, you know, like zinc or iodine or magnesium. And there are some people who they just take that single nutrient and they can do really well. They, and, it, you know, maybe it improves their sleep or um, improves their anxiety. And I'm sure there's, um, you know, we haven't talked about herbs and it's not my area of expertise, but I know that you're involved in a lot of that, of that type of research and practice. Um but herbs aren't, from what I know, a single ingredient, are they? They yeah. are complex. Would that be a fair statement to say? Absolutely, yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's a you know, full range of phytochemicals. Mm. Yeah, so it's a, f- a full range, and so, um, and so maybe that is part of the ma- the, the not the magic, but part of why that they can be so useful clinically. Um, whereas when it comes to the vitamins and minerals, we always t- seem to think about them in their singular form. And, um, and when we look at the singular data, it's, you know, there are some studies that show some benefit from, for some single nutrients, but for the most part, uh, we don't see that. So I, again, that's why I really push for the breadth and then the dose. I think the therapeutic level is between your RDA and your UL. That's where, that's definitely where our research is showing that the therapeutic benefit seems to occur there. And so that's where you then as a consumer or as a health practitioner would want to look at the, the formulas that have been studied within that window of a probably likely above the RDA, but not at a toxic level. So between, and there's a huge opportunity between yeah. the RDA and the UL to give the nutrients um, in that sort of zone and then collectively together, because every t- if you, if you give a single nutrient at a high level, then you end up can cause a lot of imbalances. And so you, you'd want to give it as a, you know, as a, as a full, the full breadth of the nutrients 
the way we would consume them normally in nature. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's really that I haven't named any products because (laughs) (laughs) I can't. But I'd say go to the research or, or um, you know, can I say can I can I promote my book and say it's all written in our book in the the better brain. I was going to. We'll certainly uh, find it in your book. Yeah, or or on my I've I've done an edX. I don't know if you're familiar with edX. It's a online educational um, platform through Harvard, and I developed a, an online course on mental health and nutrition just over a year ago now, and that's free. So you can go online there and take that course. It takes eight weeks uh, to to do it if you're really committed, but you can dip in and out and, yeah. and you know, choose to, to watch what you want to watch. And all of the information about the supplements is provided on the online platform. Terrific. I must admit, I uh, haven't, haven't, uh, I did uh, subscribe to it and uh, watched a, f- a few oh, of the, uh, okay. um, and it was brilliant. <laughs> yes, well sorry. done. So uh, it was absolutely great. So if anybody's uh, interested in learning more about nutrients and its in- relationships to mental health, I certainly recommend it. And we'll include a link to it in the show notes for sure. Oh, thanks, Adrian. So uh, just a question then with regards to the, uh, so you've got your breadth, you've got your, obviously your dosage is important. Any difference between, let's say, for act, you know, different forms of the, nutrients activated non-activated you know any comments on that um i get confused about some of this because uh some people say they can't possibly tolerate some of the active versions of say you know methylated folate or um and 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 they'll talk a lot about you know being an under methylator and an over or over methylator whichever one will apply to them, and and that that influences which kind of um, supplement that they take. I I haven't I've looked at it in the in the formulas that we've studied and they for the most part are methylated, but um, and whether or not I don't you know there might be some people who react to that. I haven't been able to really. Um, uh, quantify it or or observe it clinically, and we did look at a little bit about whether or not some people had you know the variants of the MTHFR um, gene, and you know looked at different you know the d- different variants there, and couldn't find that as being a predictor of response. So, mm-hmm. but then our sample size was pretty small, and so maybe that's the problem. But then I'd say if your sample size isn't able to detect it, then how useful is it at an individual level? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, 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 I guess I don't know the answer to your question. Very, you know, I can't give you a really good answer because we've typically used um, active version forms, um, but there may be people out there who react to it. Okay. I don't okay. know if you, have, so, you know better about that than I do. I mean, I don't think I've, yeah, personally, I haven't had enough um, exposure to seeing the activated versus non-activated with my clients and seeing whether one works better than the other. And, you know, obviously the problem for me is I'm not just giving micronutrients uh, with my clients. You know, there's a whole range of treatments. So who knows which bit works and, and, and so forth, which is right. always very difficult. So, so just yeah. then to summarise... Um, from what you're saying today, it really sounds like obviously micronutrients could really be delivered on a population-based level and potentially um, make people far more resilient to stresses that they may be experiencing in life or, or if there's an upcoming trauma that could potentially make them more resilient and and, and maybe uh, prevent them from developing full-blown PTSD. Is, is, that's what seems to be some of what your research is saying. Is that right? 
I think I certainly would like to think that you know we haven't mm. explored it to that you know and big big population studies. Yeah. So I can't conf- you know can confirm that that would happen, but it makes sense. Um, the biology makes sense. The research that's been done to date would suggest that, that that's what should happen, that we should be able to really avert um, the development of some fairly significant psychological problems as a consequence of being well-nourished. I mean, it, it would, you, know, you start to think, what do we? What kind of research needs to be done to really prove that? Um, I think it's hard. Uh, it would be hard to do because once you get into those really large population studies, then it's harder to do the controlled yeah. trials. But then I think, but we have a lot of data that shows at that population level that the more you eat uh, nutrient dense foods, like consistent with the Mediterranean diet, then that does seem to confer a re- level of resilience and reduces your your likelihood of developing anxiety disorders or mood disorders down the road. And then conversely, the more you're eating a really nutrient depleted diet, like the Western diet, and we know yeah. it's depleted in new micronutrients. And so it's, it, you can, you just can look up any of those foods and, and look at their nutrient contents. I always think that if we could just have them list the nutrient, the micronutrients on the back of the packages of, you know, a UPF packages, then we'd hopefully convince more people to see, oh my gosh, there's like, there's zero, um, uh, you know, phosphorus in there. There's zero uh, selenium in there, zero copper or manganese in these, in these products. And then when you know that you need those minerals um, on a daily basis, hopefully it would, people would start to make that connection of maybe I should be changing what I eat. And I always say that, you know, as much as my research has been about supplementation, I I think what it tells us is that our food supply is inadequate for far too many people. And be that because of food choices, be that because of food deserts, food opportunities of, you know, the types of foods that you can purchase. It's, it's a complex web of what's happening there. But we've allowed that to happen and we've allowed the food industry to really just dictate what we're eating. And so, you know, I, I do think we need to be uh, you know, being far more active around changing yeah. our food environment for our our betterment of our physical and mental health. And all my research does is really brings that home because it shows when you give people additional nutrients, then we seem to be able to improve their mental health. So kind of a, sorry, a long-winded answer thinking no, about your question. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm mindful of time, but I mean, certainly if people want to learn more, I mean, I certainly recommend your book, The Better Brain. Yes. And I certainly recommend it for, for listeners. You know, it's got obviously lots of information about, uh, you know, obviously the relationship between diet and, and nutrients and mental health. And then you've even got some, you know, some better brain recipes that people can kind of refer to. Absolutely. Yes. I, I'm happy about where it ended up and um, delighted that Bonnie because Bonnie really in her in her um, retirement thought that writing a book would be a really good idea and, and dragged me along. But it's it was really a, a fun project and a, I'm really, really glad that I did it. You know, once once I get my mind onto something, then I do it and I and I put everything into it. But it's just that that decision of is this really what I want to do with my life? Write a book? <laughs> so. Well done. You've done a great job. 
All right. So, well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this such important issue. I know that uh, most natural health practitioners are acutely aware of the links between nutrition and mental health, particularly when dealing with trauma and stress. Um, but having the solid scientific evidence and the extra insights that you provided from your research really drives that point home for us. And it's a reminder to us all the power that nutrients have, not only in extreme situations like treating PTSD, but also for everyday stresses. So thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, my, uh, my pleasure, Adrian. So thanks everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.